Hey everyone, this is another episode of the Summons from Gallifrey podcast. This is a podcast that's focused on talking about classic Doctor Who. Alright, and in this episode we're going to be covering Colin Baker's final story, The Ultimate Foe. This one's a doozy, folks. We're almost at the end of the very first season of our podcast, which is pretty cool. I actually am surprised that it I made it this far. Um, but I'm having a lot of fun. I'm enjoying it. So hopefully you are too. Don't forget to like this podcast wherever you hear it. Uh, leave it a review and a rating. And that way it helps the algorithm kind of spread it around and make it available for other people. We... Um, we're now okay we now open we're jumping to season 23 set to air in 1986 back in season 22 one of john nathan turner's experiments with the show was to return to its previous saturday evening slot however also increasing the length of each episode to 45 minutes so effectively your episode your your number of stories remained the same but the amount of episodes was halved because, of course, now they're all double, double length from the previous 25-minute format. The result of this experiment was a slight increase in the number of viewers. And so, work began to plan out season 23 during 1985 to prepare for a transmission in January of 86. But suddenly, disaster strikes the show. Dun dun dun. Michael Grade, head of the BBC serials, suddenly announced that it was pushing season 23, delaying the transmission date all the way to September of 1986, from January. He had plenty of reservations about Doctor Who already, especially after season 22, which he felt was just too violent. After some more digging, however, and interviews, it became a little more apparent that the department suffered from a budget mismanagement issue. They underestimated the cost of a soap opera called EastEnders and needed to push Doctor Who into a new fiscal year in order to help offset the cost. However, along with the change, Grade wanted the program to return to its 25-minute episode length, but it could keep its Saturday evening time slot. Oh, and another restriction was that season 23 would only have 14 episodes in total. Yikes. So a little bit of a hooray boo type of situation. So during the first couple of years of Doctor Who, there was a 12-part story called The Dalek Master Master Plan. Not surprising considering how popular the Daleks were when they first arrived in the program. For a while, it felt like every other story was about the Daleks. When you go back into BritBox, into the first and second seasons of Doctor Who, yeah, you'll see a lot of Dalek stories. Fast forward to the fourth Doctor, during Tom Baker's era, the production team came up with a unifying theme for season 12 called The Key to Time. The hook for that season was that each story was interconnected with an overall plot device known as The Key to Time, which attempted to tie the entire season together. The experiment was a moderate success, but it had a lot of associated problems unique to this kind of idea for a season that the show just wasn't used to handling or equipped to handle in some cases. So for season 23, Eric Sayward went back to this well to come up with a new overall theme, which he called the Trial of a Time Lord. Uh, I think it was kind of one of those Eureka moments 
where it was a almost tongue-in-cheek response to the current situation of Doctor Who, where it was also kind of on trial, by Michael Grade. Structured in a similar, similar way to A Christmas Carol, the Doctor would have an adventure from his past, present, and from his own future. The story would cover 14 episodes. Initially, the plan was to break the episodes down into two four-part stories and one six-parter. John Nathan Turner was definitely on board with the idea, also eager to reboot the tone of the series to be a lot more light lightweight and stay away from the heavier, quote-unquote, violent imagery that kind of prevailed in season 22. An additional subtle point of the humor around the suggested trial format is that it's kind of neat that in effect the doctor would be watching most of his own timeline while making comments on it. So imagine an entire season of a reaction video. Hooray, so he, Doctor Who did it before anyone else did it on YouTube. So thus, the originally commissioned scripts for season 23 were all abandoned and thrown away. This included a story by Graham Williams called Nightmare Fair, which did sound pretty cool. I think it might even be a um, audio adventure produced by that audio company, um, whose name escapes me. Big something, I think. Big Finish? Yeah. I think they do, uh, they do audio, if you haven't checked them out before, they do audio adventures of Doctor Who. And there's a lot of the, a lot of the voice acting done by the Doctors is by the actors themselves, which is really cool. Anyways, back to season 23. There was some initial confusion between interviews to the media by JT and Sayward and the writer's room. Sayward was effect effectively communicating that these 14 episodes should all be taken in context together, kind of like a Dalek master plan plus two. However, the writers were approaching the season as kind of small story chunks tied together with this trial concept, basically very similarly to how the Key to Time series was approached, which again had a, had a few issues when it worked that way. Robert Holmes was commissioned to bookend the 14 episodes. He'd come up with the initial four-part story called The Mysterious Planet and then the final six-part adventure. However, Holmes initially declined the six-part story idea and wanted to instead write the final two episodes, coming up with an idea along with Eric Sayward called The Ultimate Foe and part 14 would be called Time Inc. Time Incorporated. JNT turned to the writing team of Pip and Jane Baker. No relation. I mean, again, it's pretty much if you if your last name is Baker in Britain, then you're pretty much guaranteed to work on Doctor Who to some capacity. But he turned to Pip and Jane Baker to come up with a four-part storyline that they needed, which became known as Terror of the Vervoids. Another level of disaster struck the struck the production when Robert Holmes became seriously ill and passed away after only barely finishing episode 13, leaving 14 totally untouched. While Eric Sayward and JNT were mostly on the same page for the season, Sayward had a huge problem with the creative direction of the conclusion of the storyline and actually quit from the program in frustration, forbidding JNT from using his originally drafted idea for episode 14. See folks, nothing but drama. They haven't even started filming yet. JNT was stuck and forced to turn to the writing team of Pip and Jane Baker again, who needed to try and piece together a conclusion from some previous outlines sketched together from Robert Holmes before his passing. 
We pick up the trial towards the very end. We're now about to go through episode 13. In the trial so far, the road hasn't been an easy one for the doctor. Not only has his own presentation of his defense resulted in charges of genocide against him, oops, but he discovered that his companion Perry was murdered and had to be ultimately destroyed by the Time Lords themselves. Let's jump right into the synopsis of The Ultimate Foe, which is credited to Robert Holmes, and then episode 14, credited to Pip and Jane Baker. The intro music sequence was updated for this season, by the way. The courtroom resumes session. Throughout the entire trial, the doctor has been arguing that someone has been tampering with the Matrix. This is like the databank of the entire race of Time Lords. The judge has requested the presence of the Keeper of the Matrix. The Valiard, aka the court prosecutor, reminds the court and us that the doctor faces charges of Article 7, genocide. The judge asks the doctor if he has any more evidence to present in his defense. He declines but wants to point out that the so-called case against him brought forward by the Valiard has been nothing but fabrications and distorted evidence. The doctor claims the evidence is different from his own memory of the same situation. The judge points out to the doctor that she has indeed summoned the, the Keeper of the Matrix. The Keeper stands up and the judge asks him if it's possible for anyone to tamper with the Matrix. He tells her it's quite impossible. The only way into the Matrix is through the Key of Rassilon, which is a physical key hanging around his neck the entire time. The key never leaves his neck, except for rare occasions when qualified personnel are performing maintenance on the Matrix, which happens maybe once or twice a millennia. The doctor jumps on this point, pointing out that keys can be copied, especially if it's not in the Keeper's presence 100% of the time. The Valiard objects, calling this allegation ridiculous, claiming that the doctor has no evidence of tampering. The judge agrees, telling the doctor that wild theories don't constitute a defense. The doctor reminds the judge that the keeper has admitted the key of Rassilon has left his possession on very rare occasions, allowing for the possibility of a copy being made. The doctor makes another claim that he knows who's behind everything, then dramatically points at the Valiard. Along with a musical, a nice musical stinger. Ding! Kind of something like that. Anyways, the Valiard just laughs. We cut to the outside of the courtroom, which is actually a space station of some kind. It's not really important, but whatever. They're on a space station. In a courtyard, in a courtroom, on a space station. A beam of light comes out from the space station, and we can see two boxes being pulled down into the station. Identical to how the doctor first arrived back in episode one. The boxes open up, and Sabalam Glitz gets out of one of them and helps Mel get out of the other one. Picture Glitz as kind of a Doctor Who version of Han Solo, maybe? That's maybe kind of the closest description for him. He's a career criminal that the Doctor encountered at the beginning, in the beginning story of this season. Where Mel is an energetic redhead that became his companion at some point that we'd never see, but she uh, was introduced in the previous story with the Terror of the Vervoids that I mentioned before. So we never do see an origin story with her. There, she's just there. They're both confused why they're there. 
They introduce themselves to each other, but have no idea where they are or why. Mel spots a door, and the two of them head through it. In the courtroom, the judge, judge is explaining to the doctor, and to us, that the only way to reboot the evidence of the Matrix is to present witnesses that can corroborate the doctor's memory of events. The doctor admits that there's no way he can do that. Any witnesses he might have are scattered across the universe and through time. How would he find them? As if on cue, Mel and Glitz come through the door to the total surprise of everyone in the room. Glitz realizes right away that he must have been sent there by the Time Lords. The judge silences the room and asks Glitz who has sent them there. Suddenly on the giant view screen overlooking the entire courtroom, which they've all been watching for most of this trial, the master appears, claiming that it was him. He introduces himself to the courtroom as the master and tells them he's broadcasting to them from within the matrix, proving the doctor's theory that such a thing was possible. The keeper points out that he doesn't have a key. The master holds up his own copy of the key, also proving the doctor's theory. The judge is trying to restore some order and the master cuts her off. He explains he's been following the entire trial and is intervening for the sake of justice. The doctor just scoffs at him. The master admits that the doctor is his enemy, but he's not prepared to let another enemy beat him. The camera quickly flashes to the Valyard. The master explains that the doctor needed witnesses, so he sent Glitz and Mel. The Valyard objects, trying to point out that Glitz is an admitted career criminal and his memory of events could be rejected, should be rejected, sorry. The master gently asks the judge to let Glitz speak. The judge turns to the Valyard and agrees that criminals have been known to speak the truth when their own interests aren't at stake. The Valyard objects again, arguing that this master shouldn't be allowed to produce witnesses. The master just stares at the Valyard, stating that he's pretending not to know him. So basically, it's obvious to everyone but the doctor in the courtroom that there's something going on between the master and the Valyard. I mean, it's pretty apparent, the way they look at each other, and the way they, they've just been talking to each other. The judge re-explains to everyone that the doctor is admitted to produce witnesses to make his case, after which they can be cross-examined by the Valyard. And so the doctor begins. He reminds Glitz of their first encounter together. And this is referring back to the Mysterious Planet, episodes 1 to 4 of this season. Glitz and Dibber, Glip, Glitz and his companion Dibber, Dibber were searching for a box. But what was in the box? Glitz reveals that it was full of secrets from the Matrix that were being stolen from the Time Lords. The Sleepers, who we sort of met in the first story, had found a way to break into the Matrix. They were operating from the planet Earth as a cover for the real homeworld planet of Andromeda. Glitz continues to explain that the Time Lords eventually did find the leak, and they used a special gizmo called the Magnetron, which flung the Earth and its entire solar system billions of light years across the universe. The Master finishes the explanation that this meant the recovery mission from Andromeda failed to find the Earth where it was supposed to be, thus keeping the stolen Time Lord secrets safe. The Doctor points out that the Magnetron can only be used from an order from the Time Lord High Council, basically only the President himself. 
Time Lords then renamed the planet Ravalox to cover their tracks. This might mean that the Doctor's TARDIS, or maybe every TARDIS, has a link to the Matrix, which basically has an astral navigation map of the entire universe. I mean, that's maybe what they're implying here. Is that if the Time Lords just change the name of, of, every, of the planet, then it's picked up by all the TARDISes that are oper in operation. And then here the Doctor starts a tirade against the High Council, ranting about how degenerate they've become as a civilization. He's been traveling the universe to fight evil when he should have just stayed home. The Judge tries to interject, but the Doctor continues by pointing out that if he hadn't have visited Ravalox to begin with, then the High Council would have been able to keep this buried for centuries. The Master agrees and points out that the Doctor has a way of blundering into things and that in this case, the High Council was taking full advantage of his blunder. The Judge demands a, an explanation. The Master reveals that the High Council made a deal with a Valiard, or the Doctor as he knows him, who adjusts the evidence against the Doctor. In return, he'll be rewarded with the Doctor's remaining regenerations. So back to Time Lord lore. A Time Lord can regenerate 12 times, and Colin Baker is the six, so basically the Valyard would get his remaining six regenerations. Or five, if I can do that right. Six. But before the Valyard can finish protesting, the Doctor cuts him off, realizing that the Master referred to the Valyard as the Doctor. The Master explains that the Valyard is on the tail end of the Doctor's own lifespan. He's an amalgamation of all the evil within the Doctor, somewhere between his twelfth and final regeneration. While the two are staring at each other, the Doctor demands that this trial be adjourned at once. Surely even Gallifreyan law must acknowledge that the same person cannot be both prosecutor and defendant. Then the judge starts a mini-rant of her own. The only purpose of the trial is to determine the guilt or innocence of the defendant based on the evidence given. Everything else is irrelevant. The Doctor can't believe his ears. While the two of them are distracted, the Valyard is running past the Doctor and out through the doors of the courtroom. The Doctor takes off after him, pulling Glitz with him. He needs to capture the Valyard for his own defense and prove his innocence. The Doctor heads down a small corridor to a dead end, but the Valyard is nowhere to be seen. The Keeper and the Judge follow the Doctor and the Keeper notices a secret entrance to the Matrix along one of the walls. Basically, it's like a glowy um, outline of a door that wasn't there before, but we wouldn't have really known that because we didn't really see this side of the courtroom set before. He hands the key of Rassilon to the Doctor, who uses it to open the door. Despite Mel's protests, he runs inside, pulling Glitz with him. And return the key back to the Keeper. The rest of the group return to the courtroom to watch everything on the view screen. So now we travel inside the Matrix. There's a beam of light and the Doctor appears in a courtyard of a European looking village at night. It's kind of a uh, turn of the century type of setup of I think London, basically somewhere in England is, is where we're, what we're supposed to be looking at. There's post, like it's very dark uh, on one of the walls of an alley. You can see posters for cholera. 
So basically picture somewhere in England during the time of maybe Jack the Ripper. The doctor looks slowly around to find his bearings and realizes that Glitz isn't with him. While he's shouting out Glitz's name, the Valyard's laughter echoes all around him. And, you know, the doctor, the doctor t starts strolling around and we just hear more echoes of various people laughing at him. And then there's also the sound of a bunch of children singing London Bridge is falling down in a creepy way that kids do so well. The doctor arrives at a factory, basically the dead end of the alley he was in, but still doesn't see anything. Just more laughter everywhere. In the middle of the courtyard of this dead end, there's a, a barrel basically just sitting by itself. The doctor walks over to take a look when suddenly two hands come out from the barrel and try to pull the doctor into the water pulling his face right into the barrel. Just then, a beam of light brings Glitz to the same spot that the doctor arrived at a few moments before. Glitz shouts for the doctor, and he hears the doctor yelling. He sprints towards the courtyard. Well, he kind of jogs. He doesn't really sprint. He jogs towards the courtyard and finds the doctor on the ground next to the barrel. He helps the doctor up with the doctor unsure if what just happened to him was real or an illusion. And... Just to prove a point, the doctor's hair is now totally dry. He's trying to explain to Glitz that the rules of the real world don't, don't apply here. They step through a door into the Matrix where the only logic is that there isn't any logic. Glitz is not happy to hear this at all and hands the doctor a note from the master. The master has written down the base of the Valyard. The master has written down where the headquarters of Valyard are in, in the Matrix. It's a place called the Fantasy Factory, proprietor J.J. Chambers. Right on cue, the factory that's been in front of him the whole time suddenly lights up with a sign over the door saying, The Fantasy Factory. The doctor starts towards the front door, assuring Glitz that he'll be perfectly safe. Right on cue, a door in the balcony flings open and a harpoon flies through the air, hitting Glitz right in the chest flinging him to the ground. Back in the courtroom, the judge is trying to find out from the master how much of the evidence has been tampered with. The master explains that for a lie to work, it must be shrouded with truth. Therefore, most of the events they witnessed during the trial were real. The judge asks about Perry and, is, and if she's really dead. The master reveals that Perry is in fact alive and married to King Arcanos. Mel wants to know if there's anything they can do to help the doctor. Back in the Matrix, the doctor demands Glitz get up, pointing that he was wearing a life preserver that protected him just fine. Glitz grumbles, telling the doctor that he could have been killed. The harpoon that the doctor pulls out of Glitz's chest is a comical looking one. It kind of looks like a trick harpoon, whatever. I mean, I, I think it's supposed to, to kind of underline the fact that they're in a, a non-reality section. I don't know. The doctor tries to encourage cooperation from Glitz, but Glitz wants to leave. The doctor points out that if he should die in the Matrix, Glitz will be the only witness to events. So the Valyard would gladly seek him out and kill him. Glitz realizes that he's stuck and agrees to help the doctor. 
Back in the courtroom, the judge isn't sure where to start on her decision when both the prosecution and defense are missing. The master again points out that they're one and the same. The judge demands proof. The master tells her instead to seek out the High Council and interrogate them. They're the ones that set up this travesty of a trial. While they're going back and forth, the master reveals that his motive for interfering isn't to actually help the doctor. With the doctor pitted against a Valyard, it's possible that one or both of them will destroy each other. His actual interest is in the collapse of the High Council itself. Back in the Fun Factory, the Doctor and Glitz walk through the front door to encounter a clerk with a quill making notes in a small ledger. The Doctor clears his throat but no response from the clerk. The Doctor notices a desk bell and he taps it. The clerk looks up introducing himself as Mr. Pupplewick. He asks the Doctor if they have an appointment with Mr. J.J. Chambers. Procedure is very important and must be followed and is, he's about to decline the doctor and Glitz from passing since they don't have an appointment. The doctor storms through the inner door and he and Glitz come to another desk with another clerk, clerk that looks identical to the first one. This one is another Popplewick. He tells them that they're all expecting the doctor except for the junior Popplewick. Process is the holy writ of order, he explains. For example, the process to see Mr. J.J. Chambers is through an appointment. But the doctor argues that they were expected. Popplewick then tells him that the junior Mr. Popplewick isn't allowed to expect anyone. There's a lot more dialogue like this that kind of go in circles around process, order, expecting appointments, basically a, a whole comment on bureaucracy, that type of idea. Glitz is totally not following along at all. Eventually, the doctor argues for a loophole, pointing out that Mr. Chambers wants him dead. Popplewick pulls out a consent form for the doctor to sign. It states that if he should die while on the premises, his remaining regenerations will go to Mr. J.J. Chambers. Glitz warns the doctor that he's signing his own death warrant, but the doctor just wants to finally get to meet Mr. J.J. Chambers. And he signs the form. Popplewick points them to a door at the waiting room while his signature can be verified. The doctor opens the door and finds himself alone on a beach without water. A uh, picture like a, a beach where the tide has gone out. Um, so it's, uh, I don't know, maybe that's the best description of it. A beach with no ocean. The doctor then realizes that Glitz isn't with him. There's an echoing laughter sound of the Valyard. The doctor looks around demanding to know what has happened to Glitz. The Valyard warns the doctor that he should be more worried about himself. The doctor looks down and some hands come out of the ground near each one of his legs. The hands then grab his feet. The doctor meanwhile is yelling that this is another illusion that he denies. The Valyard tells him, not this time. More hands appear from the ground starting to pull the doctor down into the ground. The Valyard's laughter just echoes all around him while telling the doctor goodbye. The doctor just screams, ah! And that is the end of episode 13. Okay, over to episode 14. The doctor sinks under the ground. 
Glitz appears on a nearby hill and runs towards the doctor. By the time he gets there, the only thing sticking out of the ground where the doctor was are his feet kind of kicking around in the air. It, I don't know, it looks a little bit silly, but whatever. Glitz tries to grab them to pull him out, but his grip slips, and the doctor's feet sink right into the ground. Glitz gives a slight moan for the doctor. The doctor then pops out of the ground nearby to his surprised Glitz. The doctor reminds Glitz that nothing is real in this reality. The Valyard himself suddenly appears. There's a conversation here between the doctor and the Valyard. It's a little hard to explain because of because during his dialogue, the Valyard keeps warping around the area, appearing in front of the doctor, behind the doctor, next to Glitz, on a far hillside, etc. Basically, the Valyard is explaining that he wants to kill the doctor in order to free himself from his early incarnations. With his total freedom and unlimited access to the Matrix, nothing will stand in his way. He then leaves for good. While Glitz and the Doctor start wa walking to make their way back to the Valyard, some mist appears on the beach heading towards them. The Doctor feels that it's toxic gas, so the two of them start running the other direction. Back in the courtroom, the Judge, Mel, and everyone else are watching these events on the giant view screen. Mel wants, to, wants them to help the Doctor, but the Judge argues that the Doctor entered, entered the Matrix of his own free will. Mel makes her way towards the door, demanding the key of Rassilon from the Keeper. Instead, he sticks his foot out, tripping her up. Back inside the Matrix, the Doctor and Glitz are coughing from the gas. They spot a beach shack thing and head inside the door. It turns out to be the Master's TARDIS. As they continue to cough, the Master wants the Doctor to kill the Valyard. The Doctor just laughs, but the Master is scared of the Valyard. The distillation of all that is evil in the Doctor, without virtue, terrifies him. The Master flicks a switch on the console and leads Glitz out of the room. There's a pulsating light strobe thingy appearing around the Doctor, and he puts his hands over his ears while screaming in pain. The pulsing light is going faster and faster. In the next room, the Master is explaining to Glitz that he's overloading the Doctor's sensory perception, which will trigger a defensive mechanism in his brain, reducing the Doctor to being a temporary zombie, allowing the Master to control him. The Master's TARDIS then materializes in front of the Fun Factory. He exits the TARDIS, ordering the Doctor a few steps forward. The Master and Glitz hide in the shadows while his TARDIS dematerializes, leaving the Doctor totally alone and defenseless as bait for the Valyard. A few moments later, Popplewick sticks his head out of the balcony door and notices the Doctor just standing there. Secondly, seconds later, the Valyard shows up. The Master steps out of hiding and tries to blast the Valyard with his tissue compression eliminator. The blast just bounced harmlessly off a laughing Valyard, who calls him a second-rate adversary. He throws one of the quills to the ground, and it explodes where it lands. The Master and Glitz start running across the courtyard with explosions on all sides of them. Glitz grabs the Master and tells him that this could all be an illusion. Then stay here and find out, says the Master, pushing Glitz to the ground near that barrel from earlier on, and he runs away. A quill lands right near Glitz and explodes, knocking him unconscious. Mel's voice suddenly starts calling the Doctor from a tunnel nearby. 
The doctor finally snaps out of his catatonic state, looking around for Mel. He finally spots her and heads towards her. She begs the doctor to follow her before it's too late, and the doctor complies, heading towards her in the tunnel. They go through a door and the doctor realizes that it's the seventh seal. They're back on the Time Lord space station. Mel argues that until he clears his name, he's just as much an outcast as the Valyard. He agrees and steps through the door into the courtroom. The judge demands an apology which is offered by the doctor. She asks the doctor, oh, she reminds the doctor that he is still on trial for the charge of genocide based on his own evidence. She asks the doctor if he agrees that Mel is an impartial witness. The doctor states that he would trust Mel with his life. The judge nods to the Keeper of the Matrix who hits a button. On the view screen we see a repeat of the last few seconds of the previous story where the doctor Mel and some other dudes throw down some chemicals which destroy a race of creatures called the Vervoids. The judge turns to Mel asking her if that's a true account of what happened. Mel is nervously asking the doctor how she should respond. The doctor tells her just to tell the truth. Mel agrees that that's the way things happened. The judge asks her if the doctor was solely responsible for devising the scheme that led to the destruction of all the vervoids. Mel nods enthusiastically that he saved their lives. There's a sudden shift of mood in the courtroom that Mel senses. The judge stands telling the doctor that he stands accused of genocide and that the evidence is incontrovertible. The verdict is guilty. His life is forfeit and she demands the doctor be taken from the courtroom. Mel tries to stop the bailiffs but the doctor gently pushes her aside and accepts the verdict. The scene kind of pans out and we find out that this is playing on the giant view screen inside the real courtroom. The real Mel is beside herself with anger at what's happening to the doctor and that he's not even aware that he's inside an illusion. She rants at the courtroom that she's not going to allow the Valyard to take advantage of the doctor's act of self-sacrifice. She runs towards the door again, and again the keeper sticks out his foot, but this time she stomps it and grabs the key of Rassilon from his neck. In the Matrix, the doctor is standing in the back of a horse-drawn carriage being led through the courtyard. There's a flash of light and Mel shows up. She looks around and goes through the side streets trying to find the doctor. The doctor's carriage makes its way past Glitz, who suddenly come, who finally comes back to consciousness. He's confused by what he sees, but he hears the master calling his name, so he heads towards the master's voice. The doctor looks around and starts delivering a monologue about his sacrifice. Basically, he's, he's got some kind of quote. I, I don't know what it's from. Mel runs up and tries to get the doctor's attention. He, he tries to get her to go away and suddenly the carriage vanishes, causing the doctor to fall down to the ground. He picks himself up and is exasperated at Mel for interrupting his meeting the Valyard. He knew it was a fake trial all along, because of not Mel. Not Mel stated in her testimony that the doctor denied the charge of genocide, which is impossible because she wasn't even in the courtroom at the time. With a long sigh, he leads the two of them back to the front door of the fun factory to find Mr. J.J. Chambers. From inside his TARDIS, the master orders Glitz to go out and lead the doctor to the Valyard. Meanwhile in the factory, there's no sign of any of the Popplewicks while the doctor is looking through the offices. 
Not quite sure yet what he's looking for. Maybe the consent form that he signed earlier? I don't know. He's just looking to see what he finds. In the first Popplewick office, Glitz slinks in and opens Popplewick's desk. Inside, he finds the same box that had the secrets of the Matrix that he was originally looking for in Ravelox. Popplewick comes into the room, confirming to Glitz that it's the master copy of the secrets, and holds up a gun pointed at Glitz. Glitz asks if they can negotiate something. Meanwhile, the doctor comes across something interesting. A paper with a list of names. A list of all the names of Time Lords attending his trial. Mel points out that all the names are crossed out. The doctor also points out that it's in his own handwriting. So basically from the Valyard. Glitz leads a protest protesting Popplewick through the door at gunpoint. He tells the doctor and Mel that due to his powers of persuasion, he's found a minion that will take them to meet Mr. J.J. Chambers. They must go across the courtyard. While they're heading across, Glitz and Popplewick fall behind the Doctor and Mel. Glitz tells Popplewick that they had an agreement. At the same time, he hands the gun back to Popplewick, who wants to give Glitz the secret tapes. Popplewick points the gun at Glitz and fires, but then Glitz holds up the bullet in his hand with a smile. The Master suddenly shows up behind Glitz, pointing his TCE at him. Glitz tries to tell him that he was on his way to see him, with a nervous giggle. The Master gestures with his TCE and they head back into his TARDIS. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Mel arrive at a workshop. The Doctor is admiring a steam engine. I don't quite know what it is. It's basically a uh, turn-of-the-century steam contraption engine piston thing. Popplewick comes into the room and tells the Doctor that he doesn't see Mr. J.J. Chambers anywhere and that he'll go find him. As soon as Popplewick steps out of the room, the Doctor frantically looks around for something and spots a rope that he hides behind his back. Mr. Popplewick finishes closing a set of double doors, telling the Doctor that he just can't locate Mr. Chambers anywhere. The Doctor distracts Popplewick, then proceeds to tie him up with that rope he grabbed earlier. Popplewick starts protesting until the Doctor reaches up and takes Popplewick's face off to reveal the Valyard. Mel goes over to the double doors and opens them. There's some kind of whirling machinery. The doctor takes a look and calls it a maser, microwave amplification and stimulated emission of radiation. Mel asks what it does. She's not the only one, basically everyone wants to know what it does. The Valyard reveals that it's a particle disseminator. The doctor then remembers the list of names they found. He realizes that it's a hit list of all the Time Lords sitting in the courtroom, and they'll be killed via the V-screen. He orders Mel to run back and evacuate the courtroom while he tries to defuse the Mazer. The Valyard is just laughing. In the courtroom, the Keeper comes into the room with an urgent message for the Judge. The, the High Council has been deposed. The Master thanks him from the viewscreen. He states that since Gallifrey is descending into chaos, only he can impose order through control of the Matrix. To argue with the Master means facing execution. Inside the Master's TARDIS, he laughs, switching off his camera to the courtroom view screen. Glitz is impatiently waiting for him to load the secret tapes. It kind of looks like a giant Nintendo cartridge. 
The master shoves the tape into his TARDIS console and he flicks a switch. Immediately, they're both flung to the walls of the TARDIS. They're kind of stuck. It's a trap. The master calls it a limbo atrophier. The Valiard is calling the bomb diffusing impossible. The doctor argues that if he rigged it, rigged it up, then he should be able to diffuse it. Mel bursts into the courtroom, yelling for everyone to get out, their lives depending on it. Mel bursts into the courtroom, yelling for everyone to get out, their lives depend on it. The bailiffs immediately take off, which is hilarious. They kind of look at each other and pshoom. But for some reason, everyone, including Mel, just hang around and just take cover. It's kind of silly. The Valyard is working on loosening the rope while arguing with the doctor. The doctor uses a wrench and smashes some, piece of the, some pieces of the machinery, causing an explosion in the factory. He proudly declares that he's triggered a feedback loop. The Valyard gets loose, then shoves the doctor, who falls to the ground. The Valyard tries to get back to the machinery and reverse things, but these laser thingies coming out of the machinery eventually kill the Valyard. They're like sparks or something that, that are flying in the air. The doctor stumbles out of the factory back into the courtyard. He runs across towards the exit to the seventh seal just as the factory explodes. He comes into the courtroom to find Mel, the judge, and the other Time Lords picking themselves up. The judge formally dismisses all charges against the doctor and then tells him that Perpigillian Brown is still alive and has married King Arcanos. The judge asks the doctor to stay and run for office of Lord President now that order will soon be restored. But the doctor declines, suggesting instead that the judge run for the office. He asks for a favor. Once the Matrix is restored, they can do whatever they like with the Master, but to exercise some leniency to Glitz. He's not beyond redemption. Then Mel makes a joke, just don't let him anywhere near the crown jewels. Yuck, yuck, yuck. The two of them return to the TARDIS. The TARDIS dematerializes as Mel tries to get the doctor back to his exercise routine and carrot juice. In the courtroom, the judge orders the keeper to start repairing the matrix and to requisition anything he needs. The keeper bows as everyone leaves and he turns to face the camera to reveal a laughing Valyard. Dun dun dun. And that is the end of episode 14 and the trial of a Time Lord. Well, as before, let's go through the numbers. I didn't know if I should go through all the numbers of, of every of the 14 part parts themselves, but I just chose the last two since that's what I've been doing up until now in the podcast. So episode 13 had 4.4 million people and episode 14 had 5.6 million. Some low numbers. It's kind of difficult taking out these final two episodes when there's needed context from the other previous 12. So hopefully it kind of makes sense with uh, what I was able to explain. The concept behind this entire season is brilliant, I think. A very tongue-in-cheek idea that could have been executed so much better. Hearing the backstory behind the production of this 14-part grand adventure now makes total sense why things feel so isolated and disjointed. After watching the entire 14 episodes together, it's almost painfully clear that there was not enough planning of the direction of the entire season. Maybe as they were coming up with this concept, they each operated under the belief that things would basically write themselves because of how strong the whole idea was. 
Of course I wasn't there during any of the planning, or show, or anything. But with the production delays by the BBC, the team had plenty of extra time to really sit down and plan out the entire direction of the 14 episodes, then hand the direction to each of the writers commissioned. Maybe to some capacity that was done by Sayward? I don't know. Maybe I'll have to find some more interviews, depending on how much people said during this time frame. The Mysterious Planet adventure did highlight a different tone to the Doctor and Perry's relationship, which was really fantastic. Even after the long production break, they were still so amazing together, but now there was an extra layer of supporting each other. Think of two good friends who sometimes bicker in a playful, playful way. A real stark contrast to what we saw in The Twin Dilemma and in Season 22. But John Nathan Turner also managed to ruin one of the most shocking and epic cliffhangers that the show created of Perry's death by revealing at the very end of episode 14 in a throwaway two-second line that Perry was okay and married somehow to King Arcanos. We could have done without it. It really would have made the impact of that so much better. Without much consultation, JT brought in the new companion of Melanie Bush who was played by Bonnie Langford, a really young, energetic actress that JT was hoping to use to attract younger viewers. However, I feel that she's totally miscast, or maybe just totally misused. Episode 13 tries to bring to light some revelations of the High Council's involvement and extreme interference on their own part, but it still feels a little bit clunky of a reveal. I think the show almost felt the same way itself because it's almost like several characters tried to re-explain the same thing a few times. Episode 13 really depended on the viewer rem remembering some small details from episodes 1 to 4 that were barely in the script during that time. If you blinked, you'd miss their original mention by Glitzer Dipper. In today's age of shows like Lost, Game of Thrones, Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, or others that really weave storyline details throughout multiple years, the writers have a lot of skill and practice at how to put breadcrumbs and build on small details through many episodes to really help build tension and payoffs later on in the storyline. However, this felt like a really brand new concept to the Doctor Who writers, and they seem to have a hard time creating some strong story links throughout the whole season. Another complaint of mine was the set of the trial itself. I understand that it needed to be expensive, inexpensive sorry, to save on the budget, but why not just use a real courtroom? Just explain to the audience that the trial is being held in the Matrix itself. I mean, they could, they could have done it. They, they really didn't need this space station. Uh, I didn't mention it, but in episode one, there's like a 20-second sequence, computer-animated sequence, of the Doctor being transported and slurped up into the space station, which was really cool and impressive, but it ultimately didn't really need to be needed. They could have just used a real courtroom and I don't know. Anyways, I haven't come back to the story in a very long time. My memory of it from the last time I saw it, like 10 years ago, matches what I freshly witnessed for this podcast. I rate these two episodes with a 1.5 Mr. Popplewicks. Oh, and back to Michael Gray of the BBC. After season 23 was aired, he agreed to renew the show for another season on the condition that Colin Baker was fired. Bam. Join me next time when we pick things up in season 24 with the introduction of a new doctor, 
played by Sylvester McCoy. If you liked what you heard, please leave a review for the podcast, share it with your friends, and I'll see you next time. Peace, everyone.